Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi folks, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal and I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my Melting Pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this Melting Pot and enjoy the chats. Hi listeners, welcome to another Melting Pot episode, which as you know is weekly. Today my guest is very special. His name is Adib Chaudhary. Adib is a photojournalist and also a writer based in London. His journalism and photography for it basically focuses on forced migration, identity, and human and environmental issues. Thank you so much for joining me today, Adib. I am so looking forward to this conversation because I know you have a fascinating story to share with me and my listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. So where do we begin is a very, very <laughs> important question. <laughs> Maybe we should just go back in time a little bit to mm. your upbringing, which part. I know you're from Bangladesh, but you moved yeah. to the UK. Not sure when that happened. So so a little bit about you, probably to start a conversation going. And then, of course, we can go into a lot more detail about your work. Yeah, sure. I, I always struggle with, with where to begin, but... Yeah, so basically my, my parents, they're both from Silat in northeast part of Bangladesh. And then they, they moved to the UK. And so I spent most of, I've basically been brought up in the UK, in the southeast England, in Sussex. And I would go back and forth from Bangladesh very, very frequently. I mean, I would go back sort of every year or every other year when I was younger. And the longest gap I've had is most recently because of Corona, which has been a gap of about three or four years. Um, but I do, I do go back and forth very, very frequently. So I feel very connected to to that part of my my heritage. Um, so you go back essentially to meet family, or do you have any other interests that take you back to Bangladesh? 
Yeah, I I would always go back to visit my family. I've still got a lot of family over there, and I'm very close to them. And but it's it's sort of changed the past few years. Um, every time I go back, I also try and find an excuse to <laughs> to try and produce some kind of body of work, which has led to a lot of frustration with my relatives. You know, they're like, "Are you here to?" <laughs> How long are you going to be here for? Is it to see us or is it to go and do another story? Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're very excellent at guilt tripping me. But um, yeah, I, I do try and work on stories when I go back and uh, split my time half half between seeing family and trying to do some work. Trying to do some work. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So how did you decide to get into journalism? That's the first part of the question. And mm-hmm. also, did photography sort of come along with it? Or is it something that uh, you got interested in uh, much later? Yeah, so it's it's really just, I was sort of 16 and I remember studying history and we were looking at the topic of the Vietnam War and I remember looking at the history textbook at these startling black and white images and I thought wait a minute like who's actually there taking all of these amazing pictures and and uh, it just sort of led me down this rabbit hole when I was 16 and I discovered photojournalism very quickly and it became an obsession very quickly and I've always, be, I come from a household where we talk a lot about politics from a very, very young age. I thought it was completely normal. And it wasn't until I sort of started talking more about politics with my friends, which is sort of around when I was approaching university age, that I realized that actually not everyone, this wasn't the normal thing to do necessarily. And uh, yeah, the interest in photography and politics and just writing sort of turned into that. And it was only after... I'd, I'd been fascinated by photography. I tried it at 16 and, and I took photos, but they didn't really mean anything and they didn't have much meaning to me. I just knew that I enjoyed making pictures and it was a random stuff. I mean, my earliest photos were of, you know, I remember a black and white image of this ladybird on a magnifying glass. It's just totally random stuff. So, and then, had, so, um, so basically you had an eye. You picked things that you, you got fascinated with, right? So, and I mean, something as random yeah. as this clearly shows that you were actually <laughs> seeking and looking out for stuff which was unusual and different. Yeah, and absolutely. And uh, I, I just couldn't, I, I, I knew of photojournalist work. I had obsessed over some of their, their work for, for years at that time. And I just didn't know how to go about starting it. It's not a very clear-cut career. You ask any photojournalist and they're not like, oh, I went to university, I studied this and I applied for a job and I got it. That's not how it really works, at least not in my case. So it was only until afterwards I sort of finished my studies at university that I had some time and there was a moment, there was an event that happened which really just made me it flicked a switch in my mind and I thought I've got to just try this now now is the perfect time and I tried it and yeah it it all started from there after I graduated and and what was the event it was just a mixture of finishing my my master's degree and I had I had focused on refugee issues you know for four years academically and I had realized you know this is ridiculous I, I could I would love to do a PhD and some of my lecturers were telling me you should consider it but I just felt that I was disconnected from what was happening in the real world. And I, I'd read this statistic on The Guardian, and it was at that time, it's what influenced me to write my dissertation. It was saying that, you know, we're approaching the highest number of refugees since World War II. And it stood out to me. I thought this was mad. But at the same time, I realized that I'd never spoken to, I'd focused on Syrian conflict. I'd never spoken to a Syrian refugee. And how could I have studied them for four years 
but never have spoken to one. And there was this, the event was really, it was, there was a speaker who had come in to do a talk about Trebrenica. He was a survivor of the Trebrenica genocide. And he had mentioned how he was just two hours away from Europe. And he knew that people who were more than capable of helping were so close. And yet he just watched as the international community just did nothing. And he felt frustrated and he urged you know, everyone saying that the biggest mistake that people can make is feeling that they're powerless to help, regardless of the skills that they have. They just think it's something that politicians decide. And this is something that really resonated with me. And at that time, I thought, okay, I've, I understand the geopolitical situation. I focused on refugee issues. I know I trust my photographic skills. Let's just do it. And I handed in my dissertation. And literally one week after that, I, I just booked a ticket to Greece. And at that time, this is in 2015, yeah. Uh, Syrian refugees were coming across Europe and the you know Euro- European countries were closing borders which was a violation of the, of the sovereign agreement and all this stuff was happening it was just a month after that photo of Ilan Kurdi had had appeared and was doing the rounds in the press and I thought I've got to go and just try and see what happens and just just go and see for myself what was happening so that was really the, the pivotal moment that made me realize I could do photojournalism and it was possible and so was that the, so it must have been quite, because as you mentioned earlier, that from hearing about it to actually, and reading about it to actually being on ground is completely different, right? So what emotionally, how did you react to the situation when you were in Greece and you were actually seeing it all unfold in front of you? It was, it's a real mixture of sort of half adrenaline and half disbelief at what you're seeing unfold in front of you. And I realized at that time, there's, there is this odd kind of disconnection. If you speak to a lot of photojournalists, they speak of it where at that present time, you're just focused so intensely on, you know, getting composition and seeing what's unfolding in front of you, that you're just focused on that. And it's as if the camera becomes this sort of divide of what's happening in front of you and how you're processing it in your head. And you don't really process it emotionally until you, you're sort of editing the photos when you're quiet, you know, it's the end of the day, you're, it's at night and you're looking at the photos of the day and just realizing all the detail that you've captured. And that's when it hits home. But it is, there is a huge, of course, reality between what you read and what you see. So for instance, you know, you, you see these images of refugees arriving on boats, but what you don't see when you're actually there is this bizarre, like, circle of photographers just waiting for a boat to come in and it almost feels like vultures you know just yeah seems kind of predatory just waiting for someone's misery to and then some photographers are quite you know I don't don't know it can can be quite horrible it's just very clinical they just go click click and then walk off and then yeah they probably Mm. see a commercial angle to it which is yeah which is sad did you get an opportunity I'm sure you did but I'm going to ask anyways did you get an opportunity Mm. to talk to a number of the refugees who actually managed to come to Greece and then you know they were all sort of pushed together into into camps and did you actually manage to document not just through photographs but you know even otherwise or maybe not even actually be recording them but personally talking to a number of the refugees to try and really make sense of the madness 
that they had actually left behind and managed to, to escape through absolutely crazy, mm. you know, crazy way. Yeah, I, I did. Um, so one of the advantages was that I, I had just bought a ticket and gone there myself. So the advantages of being solo was that I didn't have any editorial constraints. I didn't have an editor who was waiting for me to submit work and it must, you know, fit this category. And I have to interview, you know, a woman and a child or something like this. So I was completely free reign. And I was also unsettled by seeing the, the sort of, as you said, the commercial kind of side that some photographers were taking. And so that just really ensured that everyone who I spoke to, I spent time with them. And in fact, I, I didn't have any rush. You know, I was in no rush to go anywhere. So I really, and they sensed that. They sensed that, oh, this isn't a guy just coming, jumping out of a car and photographing and then walking off again. And so I had actually spotted some characters who had like, they just kept reappearing along the trail because I was following this group of refugees as they made their way across Europe. And I kept seeing the same people again and again. And so I got to know them. And I, you know, I, I saw one Afghan refugee in the island of Lesbos in Greece. And I bumped into him three more times across the journey as he made his way across to Germany. And we had chatted the whole time. He'd always invited me into his tent and we chatted. And the same as other families too. So there, there were really some, some people who I had uh, really gotten to know along the journey and gotten a chance to talk to more in depth than say if I had gone with a paper. And I love that. And I tried to keep that with me whenever I had done future projects. Yeah, because then you, you're not looking at deadlines, as you mentioned, and you had no, mm. your only agenda was to actually understand where they were coming from. So out of mm. all the all the different families that you spoke with, and like you mentioned, some of them you got really connected to because you saw that, you know, almost journeyed with them as they went from one country to another. Any of those refugees, are they still one in touch with you to have the, are there any, I don't know, not mm -hmm. success stories. That's not the right way to, to put it. But what I mean is that where you, you saw that they actually going through all of what they did and coming to yeah. Europe, they've actually managed to make a life for themselves. So this is, this is one of the hard, hard things. There was one refugee who, it was the Afghan refugee I'm talking about, Ahmed. And the thing is I had managed to keep, I had taken his phone number and we had exchanged a few messages and he had talked to me that he was in, in Germany. He had been processed. He'd been sent to sort of, because at that time they were assigned to regions and they had to stay within that region in Germany, just so that the authorities could sort of know how many there were and in which region they were and give them sort of employment opportunities. And somewhere along that line, we just uh, lost contact and I could not find his contact details again. And uh, I mean, I, he had my email too, and uh, I have no idea what happened to him. And it's, it's the same story really throughout many of the, the, uh, the migration stories that I've covered over the years. But I've been more careful with that. That was sort of my first time doing it. And there were a lot of mistakes that I made um, in terms of keeping contact with them that I wish I hadn't done. And at that time, I just hadn't noticed how easy it was to lose contact with someone. Yeah. And so with the Rohingya cut stories that I covered afterwards, I kept in touch with some of them. With the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, I've kept in touch with quite a few of them as well. So that that's changed. But during the, for the Syrian refugees back in 2015, I, I've lost contact with some, a lot of them, yes. Well, that's, that's, um, I'm sure you feel, but like you said, there were some mistakes that you made, but now you've kind of, understood that you really need to keep following up 
because you you want to right because you you want yeah. to know where every their, their story has gone to and yeah i mean that's that's quite amazing so what some of your experiences and you've had so many some of them that you could highlight for my listeners that have really meant a lot and and that resonate with what you're actually uh, working towards you're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me Payal on this very unique and special podcast series Melting Pot there are two instances come to mind really i mean refugee issues are i've been interested in like i said academically and it just turned into photographically and it's been about I don't know, six, seven years now, I've been documenting this stuff. And two key instances that really stand out has got, got to be definitely one on the border of, of Burma during the, the genocide, which finally the UN has called it that, or at least some members of the UN have, um, that happened back in 2017. And another one would be um, in a Syrian refugee camp in Lebanon. And what happened in with the Rohingya crisis, why it stood out to me was because I had just interviewed this this man who had just lost his his baby girl and that time he didn't know what had happened to her she she had drowned in a river and it was quite common that that would happen during nighttime crossings as they were fleeing Myanmar or Burma trying to get into Bangladesh and people who made the nighttime crossings it was very dangerous because you know often many of them couldn't swim it was very bumpy if there was a stormy night and in his instance unfortunately he lost his his baby girl and couldn't find the body and in the morning it was quite common that people from the local villages could come up to the the banks where they could find um you know people who had washed away and he had found his girl and I had photographed him burying her and I just remember just how horrible it was because he had that reality that you know every parent doesn't want to experience of having to bury their their young child especially at such a young age and he was just beside himself with grief he was I just never forget his face I couldn't even photograph it he was clawing at the ground it was as if he was trying to get her back out it was horrible and I remember coming back that day to to my editors you know then some of them who I was publishing images to and talking to my friends who were still you know in Brussels I, I had just the year before that I was working in Brussels for a year working in policy for NATO and for the United Nations and I'd also done some work with the EU and I knew the the politicians who were meeting up to discuss what was happening in Myanmar. I knew the very rooms with which they were meeting. And I was watching this on TV when I would come back to my room at the end of photographing all this, knowing that they were discussing all this and just knowing how slow the process to do anything was. And it was just this horrible realization of being on the ground, seeing it in front of you. And then the, the complete detachment from politicians or officials in fancy suits trying to work out policy which is such a slow process and knowing that it's not going to help at, at least straight away you know and they're asking for things such as evidence or to call it a genocide which would mean that people could take action as to what was happening and I just at that moment realized that things really need to change we need to be much quicker with reacting to these sorts of instances and I know it's naive to say that these things you know they take a lot of time to do which is true but it is possible and we should be asking ourselves those difficult questions. How do we improve the mechanisms that we have to react to these instances? And it goes back to that event that I was saying back in 2015 of that Trebrinitsa genocide survivor talking to the room and saying he knew that help was just two hours away and yet no one came. And that was a, yeah, that was a very difficult moment. 
So the feeling of helplessness that you on your own are not really able to, obviously, because it's it's a very global issue. And so, so the feeling of being there, but not really being able to, to help in the way that you would like to. I mean, I can, I can understand that. Yeah. I know that from, you know, reading up about you and also, like I mentioned to you before we started this conversation that I, I recently heard you on a, on another podcast series and you we're talking about, so clearly human migration is something that you you do focus on. And you were talking about Bangladesh. And apparently you spent a few years in, in Lebanon. And mm. you started going deeper into migrant workers. Is that mm. something which just happened while you were in Lebanon and you saw the conditions there? Or did you specifically go to Lebanon to cover that? Yeah, I, I, so I, I've been living in Lebanon for the past two years and I, I not now, right now I'm based in the UK. And I came back at a time, this was about, it's been about a year and a half since I've moved back to the UK. But so yes, so why, why did you why did you go to Lebanon? Was it like an assignment for for a project, or you went on your yeah, own? So I, I had got, I was working for an NGO at the time. Okay. Um, as a disaster response specialist, so I was focusing on sort of refugee issues, and we got the chance to work remotely. And most of the people stayed in the UK. This was a London-based NGO, and I had always wanted to move to Lebanon. And as soon as we got told that we were working remotely, we won't be working from an office. I <laughs> told my boss the next day, I go, I'm moving to Lebanon. And she kind of looked at me like, where has this come from? Why Lebanon? And like, why now? And what? <laughs> It was, t- it was just such a bizarre thing for her. Yeah, no, so, yeah even I'd like to ask, why Lebanon? <laughs> <laughs> why not Egypt or, or you know, any other? Yeah. Why, why I, Lebanon? I'd become fascinated with the country whilst I was at university, actually, just studying the politics there. It's such an interesting, just the political structure of Lebanon is fascinating, you know. And it, it's such an interesting, just geopolitically, it's located in such a convenient place. That's why it's so popular with many journalists. Because you're close to Iraq, you're right next door to Syria. You've got Egypt close by as well. You've got everything just on hand. And it's a beautiful Mediterranean country. You know, it's absolutely lovely. Um, so that's, that's really why Lebanon. I just thought it would let me get closer to um, refugee issues that I cared about in a region that I was fascinated by. Okay, so then you, you decide, so you tell your boss that you're off. And yeah. she, she thought, well, she couldn't quite... <laughs> I understand where that was coming from. But anyways, you end up in in Beirut and then with the NGO, you know, looking at the refugee conflict and then you stumble on on migrant workers. workers. Okay, so did that, is it something that was so obvious for you that you could see it and sense it and because they were Bangladeshis you felt a certain kind of kinship towards them and wanted to help or Mm. how did it all how did all of it actually happen yeah very much so so I I, like I said I'd gone with my NGO to to Lebanon and that was really the reason because I knew that sort of after a few ready to pop the question 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Once I would be ending my contract and I'd have to figure out what to do next. So I thought either I could work for an NGO in Lebanon or just do what I'd always wanted to do and try my hand at full-time freelancing. And so I decided that in my first couple of months would give me a nice sort of cushion and introduction into Lebanon. I'd be getting paid my NGO salary, which was enough to sort of rent out a place, at least give myself a base in Lebanon and make contacts with editors. And then I started focusing on the issue of migrant workers after I ended my NGO contract, mainly because I was sat there one day, it was in a KFC and this guy came up to me, he had been cleaning. And often Bangladeshis are hired in, at least male Bangladeshis are hired with cleaning agencies and they have a very distinct uniform and they clean they clean out dustbins they clean out inside restaurants and this guy was scrubbing and as he was scrubbing he was sort of he kept looking at me and making eye contact and I instantly knew he was Bangladeshi and I know that Bangladeshis when they see me they don't immediately they can't quite pin me they're like maybe he's Bangladeshi maybe he's not but at the same time they they he just wasn't quite sure and then I spoke to him in Bengali and I said something along the lines of like hi brother like how are you are you Bangladeshi? I'm Bangladeshi too. How do you find Lebanon? And he was just amazed. He was like, oh, you know, like another Bangladeshi person to speak to. <laughs> right. And he, he just, he was like, listen, I can't speak much, but it's very hard over here. I can't say a lot. He kept saying the same thing. I can't speak to you a lot because I'm, I'm being watched. And if I get caught talking to customers, then, you know, it's problematic for me. And he goes, there's a lot of problems for Bangladeshis in Lebanon. Maybe, you know, maybe you don't. But we have a very bad kafala system. The kafala system is the labor employment system in Lebanon. And he mentioned that word. And then he goes, listen, if you really want to learn more, like just meet me on Saturday at this place called Daura, and I'll be there in a coffee shop and we can chat. And so, of course, you know, I'm very curious. I had to go. So (laughs) (laughs) along comes Saturday and I end up going to this coffee shop and he just tells me in complete detail, he and three other friends were there. In com- we had a great conversation about kafala and migrant workers and how his wife was working as a domestic worker. And that opened my eyes to the reality of migrant workers in Lebanon. And as soon as he had opened my eyes, I kept seeing it everywhere. I would see Bangladeshis in the corner of a store, you know, quietly sat there. And as soon as a customer would leave, they'd clean up on- behind them. They were in public toilets, you know, like take cleaning afterwards, people had finished, all sorts of places. And it kind of hit me because I couldn't avoid the story because it became wherever I went, I kept seeing it. And then one day when I was running along the Corniche, which is along the seaside, I would do it frequently. I got stopped by a police officer and in a very aggressive manner. And he, he I, I could speak basic Arabic. It was bad Arabic, but very, very basic. 
And I insisted on speaking Arabic as much as I could. So when he called me over, I realized that he was asking for my ID and I instantly knew what he thought I was. And obviously I wasn't wearing the best of clothes and he <laughs> kept asking for my ID and I kept responding in bad Arabic. And I realized that he had thought I was a migrant worker and he asked for my ID and I said in Arabic, like, no, I don't have to show you my ID. I'm running. I'm allowed to run. And then he started saying, no, you have to show me my ID now and getting aggressive. And as soon as he did, I then switched to English. And, you know, you can hear my accent now. It's very, yeah. Yeah. very distinctly British. He, his face completely changed. And he goes, I'm so sorry, sir. Like, it's okay. You don't need to show me your ID. You can go. And I kept telling him, no, but what was the problem? What was the problem? Why did you ask for my ID? And he goes, no, I just mistook you for someone else. It's okay. You can go, you know, and, and little things like this, I, I would go to a supermarket and I'd, I'd notice people looking at me funny or people wouldn't open the door for me and they would for my sort of European friends and this kind of stuff. So I, it became something that I had to, I had to cover. <laughs> you actually experienced racism when you were there. Yeah. I, initially, I thought this was just a, a labor related story, but then I, I met this excellent, it was actually, she was my Airbnb host. She's such a lovely person and became a good friend of mine in Lebanon. And she is half Nigerian, half Lebanese. And she opened my eyes to the reality of racism and how that plays a huge role in Lebanese society and where it comes from as well. And I just went down a big curiosity rabbit hole where I had to then cover this issue and look at it from different angles. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how, how, how far have you gone with it? And is it just because, you know, I'm sure you're aware that there are migrant workers in other parts of the Middle East. Mm. Um, there are migrant workers in Singapore, and a lot of them come from Bangladesh. But of course, Singapore is very fair uh, mm. to the migrant workers. And, you know, the conditions that they live in are not like I understand they are in, in the Middle East. So, uh, so have you sort of tried, are you only focused on uh, the Bangladeshi migrant workers who live in Lebanon? Or are you also now kind of expanding to other countries? Are you only focused on Bangladeshi migrant workers? Or are you also looking at other communities? I mean, yeah. how far have you gone with the story? So I, I look at it from the lens of, of the Lebanese um, angle, because I find that particularly interesting, the, the kafala system. Yeah, it's, it's also in the Gulf, of course. But um, seeing as I had lived in Lebanon, I, have, I can look at it from a very unique perspective. You know, as someone who spent a lot of time there and understands the intricacies of the story. I always try and avoid parachute journalism wherever I can. And just dropping in and covering a story at a surface yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like my connection to Lebanon affords me that ability to look at it at that particular story. So I, I haven't just focused on Bangladeshi workers. I've, I've interviewed Ethiopian workers, um, Sri Lankan workers. I work with many of them and interviewed many of them. And it's interesting because there's a sort of, I discovered a hierarchy of migrant workers uh, when you're in Lebanon. For instance, if you're Bangladeshi is considered the cheapest and the most affordable. So you're kind of a low status person if you hire a Bangladeshi as a domestic worker in your house. And if you're very rich and well off and you want to make a statement, then you hire Filipinos are considered one of the most expensive because they have a good level of English. Yeah. And so it works like that. There's actually a hierarchy. And I found that fascinating. So I want to explore some of that. I want to look at this project is very 
it turned into this huge thing where I just thought it would be a labor issue, but then it turned into racism. It turned into this hierarchy. It turned into the other issue, which I'm interested in is, which is how Bangladesh has really turned into a sort of a place where the, the working class are just commodities really. And in an international sense now, if anyone wants cheap labor, they know they can hire Bangladeshis. And this is irrespective of, you know, where, where they're from. And it's become synonymous with that. And it points to the larger systemic issue of what are the failures of globalization? Is it really a success? I mean, sure, it's pulled a lot of people out of poverty, but on the other hand, at what cost? Uh, these people aren't being treated with dignity and respect like they should do. And I'm interested in looking at that. And that's one of the interesting things why I'm so glad I have a background in, in political science, because that, that's what really gives me that angle which I can look at and tie my work um, rather than just being a breaking news photographer covering issues in front of me. I can tie it to the wider systemic issues of labor rights in Bangladesh and how that connects to the reality on the ground for a migrant worker who's cleaning tables in McDonald's in Lebanon. And how far have you, because this is very intense and are you working on your own or do you have others who believe in the same thing as you do and you have them to support you or is this just a solo project? Yeah, so a lot of my projects have been a real struggle in financially in terms of, most of them have just been self-funded. And my earlier projects were only available to me because I could, I was lucky, fortunate enough to, to get this grant which started off my earlier work and then got me introduced to sort of publications and editors who began to know me and then published some more of my work, whatever I was working on. But yeah, with the migrant worker issues, uh, it's been a real struggle, actually. It's not a very sort of, you know, quote unquote, hot topic, especially when you're sort of looking at labor rights and economic issues. And so a lot of it has been self-funded, but it's okay. I, I hope I managed to achieve funding and my next part of my project should take me to Bangladesh to look at that side. So instant, for instance, I want to look at rural communities and why women in particular are pushed towards thinking that working in Lebanon is a viable option as opposed to working in a city somewhere and some of the societal factors that push them towards that. So yeah, you can start to see how broad it's getting right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Payo, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. Yeah, I mean, wow. (laughs) To me, it sounds like, but I can see the the direction that you are taking and, and it makes sense to then just try and at least create this awareness through all the research and all the conversations that you have to for people to, you know, not like you mentioned, uh, not consider it a hot topic. Mm. And uh, because it is, it is happening. It's real. There are people out there and thousands and thousands of people who, in order to have a better, and it's, it's just marginally better financially, because I, I'm sure a lot of them come through agencies and the agents probably take most of their money away. So they're not really able to save as much as they would like to. And then you, they go to, for in your case, because you are actually doing a lot of research in Lebanon, they go there. And as you mentioned, they are not because they are 
the cheapest in terms of, you know, the labor, they are doing menial jobs and um, not looking at bettering themselves within their own country. So I guess, I think, I've, I'm not sure, but is this really what you're looking at? Absolutely. It, it is. Yeah, it's very much the case. And there's also such a, a broader range of issues too, too. I mean, the the role of the agencies and the role of the state as well in in allowing such a system to, to continue. And so yeah. many human rights groups have labeled it as modern day slavery, and rightly so. Um, so yeah, there's there is there's a whole lot to to look at, and my intention is eventually to have. Uh, I actually, it's the first project I've done where, or second project actually, I, I've done where I'd like to to turn it eventually into a book. And in my eyes, I photo books are an interesting thing, and it's a whole discussion in itself. But I I want the photo books that I hopefully I get a chance to publish to be to include a lot of text and a lot of information. I want them to be more investigative rather than just, you know, sort of very abstract, pretty looking photo books where they're nice coffee, photos. Coffee, and, table, coffee table books, right? Yeah, I don't want to produce that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and include con- real conversations, which I think mm-hmm. would would then, uh, people who, who read the book would then possibly... One is have a better understanding and two is also maybe want to get involved. Maybe they start to question things. I think, yeah, that that would be interesting. So this seems like a very long-term project for you, right? Yeah, I mean, I envision this <laughs> taking at least the next sort of five five years. But, you know, it's, it's very important to me. And I, one of the main goals with all of my projects that I undertake is that I want people... To, I want them to feel uncomfortable with what they see yeah. because they get a sense of familiar, familiarity with the subject that they're looking at. So th- there's a, one aspect of them which can relate to the person they're looking at, but at the same time, they're uncomfortable because it's making them question everything that they thought was normal and okay and just and realizing that there's another side to it. And I also want them to come away. The most important thing is that with a sense that they can actually contribute towards helping someone, whether it's through donating or sim- yeah, something as simple as donating or even just raising awareness, everyone has a role to play. Yeah. And I think that's often so often forgotten in, in journalism. I mean, you know, people think, oh, we can't change our government's policies, you know, but of course they can. They're elected by us. They're held in power because of us. And everyone seems to forget that when it comes to election time, they get carried away with, you know, all these minor details that happen, but Ultimately, they're accountable to us. And if we really live in a democracy, then we have the ultimate say and we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The, the project, you said that um, your ultimate goal is for it to, to turn into a book um, so that it's documented, it's published, it's, it's there. It's, and, and like you said, there is a message in there and it gets people to start thinking, they feel uncomfortable, all of that. Is it better for it to be a book versus a documentary where you're act? I mean, how do you feel? Because they're two very different mediums, right? So how do you, which one do you think it would be far more effective in in actually being able to convey the message that you're you're working towards um well 
definitely at least in my eyes and with the material that I have a book but it won't just consist of photos I want it to be sort of I want to say multimedia but it's still going to be in a book but what I mean by that is <laughs> it will include things like architectural drawings so I'm looking at how even Lebanese households the way that they're designed there's a small room for you know a maid a maid's room they call it and a tiny bathroom and looking at in, imposing those onto on top of you know, portraits of migrant workers, aspects like that, and also looking at WhatsApp messages that they send back home or letters that they send back home and including those in the book. So I want it to be a layered kind of book, not just uh, simply photos. Okay, okay. So, I mean, the visual impact of it um, Mm. in print with photos and all the other material that you're going to put in is what you think will have a bigger impact. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, interesting. Well, good luck with that. And, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's, it's clearly a very, very ambitious, ambitious. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> very, <laughs> very, very ambitious project. But I mean, I can hear the, the fact that you're so, so passionate. I can hear it in your voice. I'm sure it's going to uh, be a project that you will be proud of and it will be something that even if it takes you three or four or five years in the Mm -hmm. end it's something that you've accomplished and I think that's the most important thing before I I, I could just go on and on because (laughs) there is you know this and I'm sure we've just scratched the surface and I'm sure there's so much more that you would have to share in with all the different experiences that you've had but I guess somewhere we have to cap this conversation so uh, before uh, you know we kind of sign off I just wanted to for you to I I won't call it just some tips on uh, listeners who are looking at going into the humanitarian field who want to do journalism who are keen on also uh, exploring uh, the conflict and and clearly the global phenomena is what it's become and racism and all of that you know through journalism what kind of an advice would you or tips would you uh, give them if if they're just starting out and you know how what kind of direction uh, should they be taking don't study photography or journalism that's what <laughs> that's the tip that I I always uh, often get asked this by students and I, I tell them this I if if you can just you're better off you need to understand what it is that you're photographing or that you're documenting whether it's a written article or you know photography and to understand that you need to understand this the underlying issues behind it and the systemic issues behind it and a good way to do that is to study economics, social sciences, anthropology, even these sorts of subjects that give you that understanding. Because once, because otherwise, photography itself, the act of it, I mean, you, you can you can learn, anyone can learn how to use a camera. And the artistic side of that, sure, that's some people are gifted with it, some people learn it, they struggle with it. It's very much a craft that you adapt over time. And you can learn all that stuff. You don't have to do that necessarily in a course. Um, but it's more important to understand the issues that you're covering, I would say. So, so do not study 
photography is actually something that I would I would tell people. And the other thing is to just to just really focus on finding the commonalities between people that you come across with in the street and start practicing that. There's everyone has a story, and if you start practicing listening to people, and it sounds easy to say, but I mean, I would actually say the majority of people these days are bad listeners, myself included. And it's something that I've really learned over the time with interviewing people. And by really listening to people, I mean, don't have a preconceived answer to what they're about to say. Just listen to what they just said and then engage with that statement. And once you practice that, you learn to engage with people on a deeper level. And if you can combine that with natural curiosity and the ability to write and understand the systemic issues, then you've got all the makings for a, a great you know, human rights worker or a journalist, all of these things. Those are the most important aspects, I would say. Wow. That's, and that's... don't expect to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to be driving a sports car, I'm afraid. If you want, then maybe do fashion photography, right. but not, not photojournalism. <laughs> not photojournalism. Yeah, well, no. that is, is a good point. But no, but I think the satisfaction that you would, I mean, I can understand, obviously money um, in today's world does play an important important part in our lives if we want to have a, a reasonably decent mm-hmm. living. But I feel that it's also very important to follow your heart. The kind of satisfaction that you get from that, you can't with just chasing money. So you're... Absolutely. Yeah, no, and and you're spot on with that as well. So, yeah, it's it's just been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time. I know it's what ten a.m. for you. Yeah, it's okay. I'm an early bird. This is this is late for me. <laughs> this is late for you. Okay. <laughs> <Don't worry. laughs> okay. Great. So you have a wonderful day. And I wish you all the very best with your project. And I'm, I'm going to be very closely following your story. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and just getting to chat about, you know, this, this passion of mine and, and how it's changed. And I also wish you and your podcast the very best as well. And to all the listeners listening, just feel free to reach out if you have any questions or just want to talk about the issues that I've covered too. I'm always happy um, to do. And where where can they reach out to you? Uh, I'm very active on Instagram. It's a love hate relationship, but I do respond. <laughs> I promise. Okay. Um, you can find me at Adib Chow. So it's A D I B C H O W. You can find me there on uh, Instagram, and yeah, just send a message. Okay. Great. I'm sure whoever's listening to this this episode will will keep that in mind. And whoever wants to, you know, get into human rights and things like that, I'm sure they're going to connect with you. So once again, thank you so much, Adib, and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. For more weekly conversations, do listen to Melting Pot on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Follow us on YouTube and on Instagram at Podcast Melting Pot. So until the next episode, this is Pyle signing off. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.